1: Hello, I'm uh, Egbertson Jay Thacker, also known as Param. Uh, I'm Eamon Linger.
2: I'm Nick Williams.
1: I'm Alex Coos. and I'm Steve Hildrew. Welcome
3: to Countercharge. Well, we're really excited today to have some guests, um, Kings of War playing guests, who are here to talk about the rise of the technology of 3D printing, um, its implications for wargaming, but particularly how it's being used in Kings of War in our hobby. So two of our guests are brand new to the show. Nick Williams is, of course, an old hand coming on Counter Charge, and we're really happy to welcome him back. But we've had quite a few new listeners uh, recently, so people might not know who you are. So we're going to go through each of our guests and give us a a quick intro to who you are, whereabouts in the world you live, uh, how you found Kings of War, and then give us a bit of an update about what you've been working on uh, during this isolation period on quarantine. So Nick, let's start with you. Thank you
2: very much. So I came into Kings of War at the very start of third edition. I uh, picked it up just right as the uh, as the first book was launched. Um, I actually met Ronnie for the first time at the launch event for it. Um, so I've, I've been playing Kings of War throughout the whole of second and now third edition as well. I was actually on the rules committee throughout second for a lot of second um, and helped write second, but that's got me... Uh, a bit snowed under with with extra work there so uh that was left behind uh what i do now is i am one of the uh founders of the kings of war uk masters committee so i uh designed and made the the uk masters website and maintain it along with uh, the rest of the committee there Uh, and i'm i'd say quite a common face on the uk tournament circuit and uh, to quite a few US tournaments as well. Uh, in terms of my hobby during lockdown, what I've been looking at is basically finishing stuff off, I would describe it as. Um, so just, just churning through all the the backlog of projects. What I've done so far is I've finished my Night Stalkers. Uh, painted every single Night Stalker Mini I own and just uh, need to finish the bases off and uh, that's 5,000 points worth of Night Stalkers done, and I can safely draw a line under that. That Night Stalkers are done. Um, and moving on to the rest, I'm actually uh, starting to paint some undead as well. I've got some Abyssal Dwarfs to finish and uh, some Ogres on top of that.
3: Wow, I've been a busy boy. And I heard um, a nasty rumor that you've been filming your hobby process so we can uh, kind of see a little bit of insight into the hobby workings of uh, Mr. Nick Williams. Is that right? What, what's the time scale we're looking at to see those?
2: Uh, I have you filming. Yes, uh, the timescale is very much up to interpretation. Uh, I've, I've got lots <laughs> of recordings. I need to edit them. I need to upload them. Don't know when that'll be.
3: At some point in the near future, something to look forward to. At and some Nick, point. While we've got you on, before we move on to the other two, I just want to ask you. So, how, as part of the Masters Committee, obviously this uh, the isolation and quarantine has put a huge hole in the hobby calendar. Kind of what's what's kind of the current thought about how that's going to be handled in terms of Masters.
2: Uh, we haven't uh, strictly decided yet. We've uh, had some preliminary discussions on what we would do under various circumstances. I think something that we that we can say is that the uh, committee has generally agreed that if there aren't any more major tournaments this year, I think we, we would possibly look at extending the season out to next year as well and have an, an extra uber long season because this season was already longer than than normal because we're shifting from a November to October to uh, January to December so it may be uh, maybe even longer than that but we've we've not decided we're going to wait and see what happens and we'll make a judgment call later in the year.
3: Seems pretty sensible well welcome it's always good to have you on the cast and now to a a brand new member but not new to podcasting Perham welcome to the show tell us a bit about yourself how you find Kings of War and, and what have you been up to in isolation?
1: Hey, yeah, I am doing okay. I'm Joseph J. Thacker, also known as Param, and I am a podcaster uh, primarily uh, from the No Direction Podcast Network, uh, where I we talk a bunch about Pathfinder and RPGs. And I had not heard uh, of Kings of War three months ago, and uh, so two months ago, actually, uh, my younger sibling, who was unfortunately disabled, wanted to get into Wargaming. And we used to play Warma Hordes, War Machine and Hordes uh, a long, long time ago, but that scene just died up here. In fact, all uh, Wargaming died up. I did some research, and because we love to play RPGs, DD, Pathfinder, those sorts of things, I kind of was a little bit biased and wanted to have a game where I could get double use out of all the money I was about to drop on this. And so Kings of War was kind of Perfect. I saw all of the, that, you know, we could use our own minis for that, that the minis that they did make for it were a lot of really cool fantasy minis. The dwarves look freaking awesome. Uh, and that we could also, you know, it, when we watched some of the battle reports from people the in the, the third edition had just come out, we were, well, I guess just come out is relative. I guess that's been August. Uh, but we had really enjoyed what we saw of it. It was a really simpler system compared to what we were used to with some of the other games we played, but it still looked deep. And it looked like a whole lot of fun. So we tried out uh, just some basic games with, you know, with cardboard and all that nonsense. And we had a blast. So I decided to get into that. I ordered her a, 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 the Elf Army Box for her birthday. And then I noticed that I would not be a very fun game if it was just me and them playing in the area. So I contacted all my local gaming group. I lead the. I, I used to be the organizer for a lot of the local tabletop RPGs in the area, and what basically put together a a crew that would all agree to get in this game so that we could play with my younger sibling, and uh, and, and so part of that was. Hey, if you do this for me, and we've all been talking about getting 3D printers forever, why don't, if you do it for me, I will print your armies for y'all in exchange for the, just the cost of the making the minis, and it looks like this is dirt cheap. And everybody just sort of signed on. And then COVID-19 happened, and I've been stuck here at the house with a 3D printer, Giant pile of resin bottles. Uh, my younger sibling and you know have since p- ended up with a pile of unpainted plastic miniatures uh, in the in the duration. So it's been a lot of fun, and I kind of got obsessed with it all, and just like went straight into the deep end uh, with with both the game itself. I uh, I've been basically obsessed with it since. I got a lot of time to just sit around and read and, and do things. And just printing minis and painting minis and designing minis and customizing minis is, is pretty much the only thing keeping me sane during the stay at home time.
3: Awesome. Whereabouts in the world are you? So, did you say? I didn't...
1: Oh, yes. I am from Eastern Kentucky in the United States which is the middle of nowhere. Uh, famously, if you know about the Hatfield and McCoy feud that TV likes to make fun of all the time, I live in the town where that happened.
3: Amazing. Well, very. Uh, you're very welcome. Welcome to the hobby. Sounds as if you're going to be a, a great addition. I think having a creating your own hobby group is one of the most uh, positive things you can do. So from, from the south of the USA, we head up to the frozen north uh, beyond the border. Eamon, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
4: Hey, Steve, thanks for having me. Uh, so my name is Eamon, I've been in Kings of War for about three-ish years now. Started way back in second edition, uh, not quite as long as Nick, but uh, still here. So for me, uh, for me, uh, Kings of War kind of started as something else to do. Uh, at the time I was actually living away from my gaming group uh, in a city called Brantford, which is about 45 minute drive from where my community plays. Uh, and as a result, I kind of had to plan a game that I knew I'd at least get some time out of. Uh, and actually, uh, a friend of mine uh, introduced me to Kings of War. Uh, I had a whole bunch of old uh, Warhammer models uh, lying around kind of doing nothing. And I was able to reuse them, which what I was super happy with. Uh, so that's how I kind of got started into Kings of War. In terms of 3D printing, I've been 3D printing for a couple of years at this point now. Uh, For me, it was nobody else in our group kind of had a 3D printer. So I decided to pick that up and start printing out terrain and then moved over to Resin to start printing out minis and having a lot of fun with that. Uh, So I think I'm the only person here who uh, I'm not really prominent in the community. Uh, I more or less just troll the forums and read through things. My only real claim to fame is that I ran a tournament once. But uh, for me, uh, I've been slowly working on um, building kind of accessories for Kings of War uh, in terms of uh, if you guys went to the best of the rest uh, in the States, the red stairs that uh, the Canadian team was using were actually printed out by me. Uh, It was an idea from somebody else in our group uh, named Ben, uh, but I was the one who designed and printed them off for everyone to use. Uh, In terms of quarantine, for me, I actually am technically classified as an essential worker still. Uh, As a result, I haven't had as much quarantine time as some other people in the hobby. So for me, I've just been attempting to paint a little bit, uh, but also trying to make sure that people have enough models by printing models for people so that they don't run out of models in quarantine. Because I'm a very much a firm believer of you don't have to paint your stuff uh, if you print enough stuff for the group and it looks cool. But that's a quick wrap on me.
5: Yeah, Amon's doing a great job as for being our uh, our local resin uh, dealer.
4: <laughs> There's a lot of us who who want a whole bunch of different things. Uh, it's it's an it's an interesting hobby and it's definitely a different side of the hobby. But it is just something else to do uh, in the meantime. But that's what I'm doing. I'm nice, short, and quick.
5: Awesome. So let's start off with like a brief kind of. Intro for our listeners about what 3D printing is, uh, what it can do for the hobby, what it can do for Kings of War in general. So, just to like take a brief kind of overview, what are the different types of 3D printing, and which like which one is suitable for what application? So, Nick, do you think you give us a quick little intro into those
2: questions? Sure, absolutely. So when it comes to 3D printing, there's basically two different technologies that we refer to. There's various other little ones, but when it it comes to home use, it's two basic technologies. There's one that prints in uh, plastic and there's one that prints in resin. I can never remember the the technical terms for them, but uh, we'll stick with that for now. So if you've you've seen a 3D printer before, you're probably thinking of a plastic printer. It's got a big spool of plastic string and it's... gradually heats up the plastic string and it, a little print head zips back and forth, building up layer by layer by layer of the, of the miniature. When it comes to resin printing, what you have is a, a little pool of UV-reactive resin. What that means is as that resin's exposed to UV light, it cures. And what the printer does is it pulls the mini off the bottom of the pool of resin, which is perhaps not that... Clear, but it's the best way that I can think of describing it right now. But yeah, that's those the 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 two basic types of 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 printer. Now, the plastic printing is very cost effective for things like terrain. Unfortunately, what you get with plastic printing is lots of layer lines, which is something that people generally associate with three D printing. These they're all right in terrain, but when it comes to miniatures, it 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 becomes quite an issue it just doesn't have the detail and the layer lines become too distracting really when when you're printing a miniature whereas resin prints they the layer lines are much much smaller almost invisible and the the detail that you get out of resin printers is is far beyond what you get out of plastic printers the downside is that it's a lot more effort to print something there's a lot more steps you have to go through there's various health concerns about the resin itself that you have to take precautions with, and it's a lot more expensive to use as well. So it's, it's unsuitable for terrain because you just you can't print things as large, certainly not as uh, cost-effectively as you can with plastic, but the problem with plastic is it doesn't have the detail for miniatures.
5: Okay, so... You have like the building layer by layer version, and then the you know emerging from the soup of resin version. And for this podcast, we're going to be ma- mainly talking about three D printing for miniatures rather than terrain. We'll be doing a separate terrain three uh, D printing episode at a later date. So generally, you what you're saying, Nick, is that if you want to get into three D printing miniatures for yourself, a resin printer is probably the best way to go, given that you have to take into account you know the increased setup and safety concerns.
2: I'd, I'd say it's the only way to go to to get anything approaching decent miniature quality out of a plastic printer. You have to be really technically on top of it. You have to take the printer apart and in, install new uh, new parts to to start to get the detail. But even then, I've I've never seen a plastic printed miniature that wasn't obviously plastic. Okay. And it
5: just that's good to know. We didn't even know where we're getting started with this. So
1: I just to, I just want to be fair uh, to the, the, the to the like really experts of plastic printing is uh, especially with uh, people like Tom Tollis, who's a friend of mine. He uh, he's really focused on showing how to get like redonkulous detail out of FDM printing. And it is possible with like with with, with like he said, some new nozzles and stuff, Um, I have seen like the very best people at this to be able to get rival quality by using very tiny nozzles and and tuning their printer in exactly. And before resin printing was affordable, uh, a lot of uh, my friends who were doing this would get dedicated 3D printers, usually some of the smaller ones that they would custom outfit to print the minis like this because it takes forever to do it and you really, really, really have to know what you're doing. And so I, I just want to just say that it is possible to get that printing quality out of an FDM printer, but it is not easy. I just guess I don't want the, to, to get the hate mail from the, the, those diehard fans. They're like, no, 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 we can. And like, yeah. you can, but it takes hours <clears throat> and I don't have that time.
5: Yeah, like you, it's not especially a, in a especially in a wargaming kind of context, when you I think with something like where you're coming from, Pathfinder or like role-playing games, having one off printing one miniature taking a long time for that isn't as big a deal. But if you need twenty miniatures, that you know that time frame take comes into play much more. I'd say.
4: Well, yeah, it's right. with FDM printers, which is the the plastic printers that uh, Nick was talking about. Um, like you're looking at from a beginner's point of view, we're talking a few months before you can tune that in, unless you're extremely tech savvy about this stuff. And there is a lot of information online about this stuff and you control through the forms for hours to try to get this done uh, set up. Uh, I've printed miniatures on my FDM printer. It took me almost a month to print two earth elementals. So 40 mil base models uh, to get them looking enough that they didn't look terrible but for what i can do on the resin printer it's it's a night and day difference for almost a month of work so it for a beginner you don't want to touch an fdm printer
1: for for minis that's what i wanted to put in (laughs) all right yeah just to look Um, Just to say about the the, the month of work, that is true. The the FDM printers, you'll spend literal days printing like a a medium model, whereas the resin printers, I've got one print going right now is three and a half hours for 12 minis at once. Right.
5: So, yeah, you can do the volume is just night and day, like it's an order of magnitude or more for the resin printers for
2: minis. That's perhaps something else that we should uh, should note with the difference between the two technologies. With uh, a plastic printer, it only prints one thing at a time, and that's it. So the more stuff that you're printing at once, the longer it takes. Whereas with a resin printer, you have your build plate, which is where the, the mini is, is, is printed on. You can fill that plate with whatever you want. You could have one mini on there. You could have, like I say, 12 minis on there, um, what a resin printer does is it prints the whole layer at once. It doesn't print one thing at a time. It prints everything at the same time. And so you, you can get quite a lot of minis out of a single print. Or If if for whatever reason you just need to print one mini, then you can do that as well. But certainly the, the timescales in that uh, in that aspect scale much better with a resin printer than with a, a plastic printer.
4: Oh, 100%. Okay. FDMs can get... Uh... If you're looking at it, FDMs just physically take longer because if you think about it, the the nozzle itself actually has to move for every single layer. Where resin printing, it's basically takes a it shines a picture of each individual uh, layer as the entire build plate. Um, so it's just it's a night and day difference. Uh, a mini that would take me probably a day and a half on my FDM printer, uh, I'd be looking at like three four hours tops on my resin printer.
5: Okay, so that's good. So we got a good base of what. You know resin and FDM printers are good at. So for someone who's getting into 3D printing who doesn't know anything about it, such as myself, uh, how would you get started? Like, what what is what's the buy-in or what's the, the setup that you kind of need to get started? What like, you know, you need the printer obviously, and then some of the plastic or resin. But like, what's the overall
2: kind of investment
5: or setup that you'd rec- you'd be required to like get good work done?
2: I I think just before we we touch on that one point that uh, should be made is that you should make sure that you'll get value out of a 3D printer because it's not the the models that are online may not be suited to what you want they they may be it may end up being more expensive to print what you want to print out than just buying the equivalents from Reaper or something so one thing that I would say is to really research what models are available first and see if you would genuinely get value out of a 3D printer before diving in because it's, there's there's the investment up front and there's a lot of investment in time as well as money. Um, so make sure that you'd get value out of it before taking the plunge.
5: Yeah, it's always good to answer the why before you answer the how.
4: Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Um, so to get started in 3D printing, um, if you actually look through the forms, a lot of people say start with an FDM printer first, which is the, the plastic printer. Um, the reason why they're saying that is that in resin printing especially, there is a lot of pre-work before and after and post-work after the fact of what you're printing. So with an FDM printer, it's fairly straightforward. Once you have the, the supports done, it, even if they need supports, because a lot of... STL files, which are the files that are, you're going to be using for 3D printing. Um, once they, A lot of them come out for FDM printers as no supports needed. So you just kind of set it up uh, with the, your settings. Um, there's a plenty of profiles out there to kind of get you started right off the hop. And then you can just kind of click print and it'll print on its own. You take it off the build plate and it's absolutely done. With resin printing, it's a much different process. So with resin printing, um, there is a lot of pre-work in terms of properly orienting the model on the build plate doing your own supports um we'll talk later about it but suffice to say auto supports tend to suck a lot and then you're waiting for it to print once it's printed you then have to kind of make sure you have all the equipment afterwards so you need a uv chamber you need to have um, alcohol uh, to wash off the model Uh, you also need a kind of a A well-ventilated room. Um, So there's a lot more of a process for resin printing, um, which is why a lot of people say to start with an FDM printer, kind of get used to the idea of 3D printing, getting used to how to use slicers and where to find files, uh, and then kind of transitioning over into a resin printer. But if you wanted to kind of jump in feet first, as Param likes to do, apparently, uh, with Kings of War, uh, you can get started with a resin printed fairly uh, soon. But like Nick said, make sure you're doing your research and make sure you, you have a good idea of the entire process from start to finish. Because the last thing you want to do is be halfway through everything and then realize you need something else to finish the job. If you know somebody who has their own printer, um, picking their brain is always something good to do. Personally, I kind of... Winged it because I was the first one of uh, our gaming group to actually get a 3D printer uh, or 3D resin printer and kind of really start with it. And then from there, uh, we've had a couple people in our gaming group kind of ping ideas off of me and I've tried to give them a bit more knowledge from my past failures. And uh, that's kind of how I would get started in 3D printing and how I did get started into 3D printing, because... A failure on an FDM printer, not a big deal. Just check to make sure, and also it isn't clogged. Take it off the build plate, start again. A failure on your resin printer is a whole different ballgame.
2: I would, I would absolutely agree with that. A a failure on a uh, on a on an FDM printer, on a plastic printer, that's that's easy to fix. You you, I've I've got a removable build plate from my printer, so I just take the build plate out and I. Call off whatever's whatever's not not printed correctly, and it's good to go again. With a resin printer, what usually happens is that the whatever you're printing will get stuck to the bottom of the vat of resin, um, and you have to very carefully prise it off the bottom of the resin, off the bottom of the vat of resin. And if you damage the the clear plastic um, sheet at the bottom of the the vat. that's called the FEP, the the clear plastic sheet. If you damage that, it's it's about half an hour of stripping down, cleaning, and replacing the FEP before you're ready to to print again.
4: And that's assuming that you didn't Uh, that you realized you had a hole in the FEP and didn't leak resin all over the place and then have to replace your LCD screen uh, because that's a terrible, terrible thing to do. Um, Just to give a brief thing, because people might be a little lost on why is there a thin piece of plastic, to kind of go with um, Nick's how resin printing works, the VAT itself is a VAT of liquid with a clear bottom because there's a screen, which is basically a glorified uh, 4K phone screen that shoots an image of... That it, the opposite, the negative of the each layer, because there's an LED light that shines through underneath it. Um, so as a result, that phone screen changes per layer to get the proper opposite of the layer you're printing. Um, so that FEP on the bottom, it needs to be nice, it needs to be clean, it needs to have no scratches, because that if that's not perfectly clear, your prints are going to be deformed in some way because the light that's coming through from the led through the screen is going to be skewed similar to like when you put a straw in water and it kind of bends a bit that's what's going to happen with your print and then you're going to get light going to places where you don't want it to which can cause print failures which can cause globbing which can cause you know your goblin sword instead of being straight is slightly crooked it may not be a big problem for a goblin but if you're expecting a specific sword then it's going to have that kind of negative
5: impact on it. So basically, what you're saying is, you're gonna have, you're gonna want some sort of technical aptitude going into the process of 3D printing. This is not like a, we're not at a state where it's a plug and play. I find my files, I push a button, and it prints me an army, right? Like you have to have some sort of technical aptitude going into this.
2: That's, that's right. absolutely correct. And and what you say about it's the the technology is not at the level where it's just download a model, press print, and it prints. You, you need it's 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 almost a skill in itself
1: yeah. i mean ironically i think that the the uh, resin printers take less of a, a technical skill it's more uh, than it definitely does but like that less skill to get good prints out of a resin printer than an fdm printer uh because the setup for the resin printers are usually a lot easier. They're pre, they're the one the popular models are basically pre-assembled, and as long as you have you know done your research and know the proper steps to get started, uh, there's not there isn't a whole lot of like fine tuning to get at least decent quality minis out of it. Uh, if if you just follow the instructions online and some of the tutorials and, and get the right settings dialed in for your printer and your resin you're using, you can basically have the whole thing set up and printing minis within a half an hour of opening the box. But you do have to have like basic shop knowledge. Uh, the, the the skills I'm using here that you really need to know is like things you need to know about working in like a, a garage with power tools kind of situation or, or a lab with uh, chemical substances that you have to be careful using. Uh, this isn't quite so much the the like, Uber techy computer skills you're gonna have. It's just, you know, how do I clean this? How do I get the FEP changed? How do I keep from getting all this resin all over everything because it's super sticky? And most importantly, how do I keep this off my skin so that I don't get sick?
5: These are good points. Um, So if someone was gonna go into like, let's create like a basically a shopping list of like the required uh, investment for each type of printings. Like, if you're going to do FDM printing, what, what are the things that you would need to get
2: started? Uh, for, for FDM printing, you buy a printer, you buy a spool of plastic.
5: That's it? That's it. Perfect. So for resin, <laughs> <laughs> that, it's that's a nice. very simple list for FDMs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: you might that, want a thing to pop the thing off the build plate if you don't have a cool removable build plate. Uh, but you'll need that for the resin printer, too.
2: Uh, you, your printer probably comes with uh, a, a slicing thing to to take it off the build plate minded
5: so basically that's a good reason why FTM is usually a big, slightly more beginner friendly fewer things to get i think from what i've heard resin requires a few more uh, you know elements to be successful so with a resin printer what what would be the required list of things that you need to get started like
1: uh, I, well, the one things you're going to need to do, uh, you're going to need some way of cleaning the resin. You're going to want to get all this stuff in advance and know what you're doing with it, okay? Because you do not want to be missing any of this and then suddenly have a big old bunch of sticky toxic resin minis uh, that you can't finish. So you need uh, something to clean the printers, which is either a couple of, uh, of plastic tubs of whatever solvent you're going to be using. You're going to need lots of paper towels. You're going to uh, also need uh, most of your resin printers will come with some of this stuff but you're going to need a better thingy scrapey offy thingy because the plastic ones that mine came with uh, we're not up to the task. You're going to need uh, snips to cut the supports. You're going to also uh, need a dedicated space. You need space for all of these things, but with the resin printer, you need the the hardest thing to get started. is you need a place to put this that is away from people? Because the just the stink of some of these resins and the cleaning supplies when you're using it is not something you're going to want in the game room or in the family room. And also because of the the delicate nature of what you're doing, and I don't want to over scare people. It is something you have to take serious, um, which we should definitely should probably talk about later. But you definitely don't want this like in the family room or where the pets are. It smells and you don't want any accidents to happen. So you're going to need a dedicated space. I recommend getting like some cookie sheets. Uh, to work on because, you know, big metal sheets to catch the resin underneath the printer and what you're working on is good. And you're also going to have to have some way of curing the, re- the uh, models when you're done. You can do it in the sunlight, but I found out quickly that I, my work hours means that I don't get a whole lot of time in the sunlight to take advantage of that. So you're probably going to want to have a, UV chamber and some people even go as far as getting a, a a sonic cleaner like they'd use for jewelry or or dental stuff uh, to, to clean the uh, miniatures both after they're printed and all of this stuff isn't super expensive, but it takes up space and you have to know to get it and you have to learn to use it. And it, uh, it definitely is a little bit more, of a, a startup besides just buying the printer and the resin.
2: Absolutely. I, I think something that we perhaps haven't mentioned yet and might give a bit more context is that when you complete a, a print in a resin printer, it's not actually finished. So the, the resin is about half cooked, for, for lack of a better term there. So when you, when you take it out of the printer, it's still covered with wet resin. And the first thing that you have to do is to clean off the wet resin. And usually you do that by putting it through two baths of solvents. I used ISO alcohol, which is fairly cheap and easily, uh, well, before the lockdown, it was it was easy to get hold of. I'm finding it quite difficult to get uh, supplies now because it's used to, as a disinfectant. So you have to put it through two baths of, of um, some sort of solvent to take off all the excess resin isn't meant to be on the model, but then the mould that's underneath that you've got left isn't fully cured. and So you have to put it under UV light of some sort. Now, some people put it under sunlight. I live in the UK, so that's generally not an option. So I, I have to have a, a chamber with uh, UV lights that I put the put the half-finished half miniature in, and then uh, the UV lamps will cure the rest in about five minutes or so.
5: Okay, so like that's the general process, but can we let's uh, let's walk our, our listeners through like start to finish printing a miniature. So typically, we're talking. I think at this point we've decided that resin printing is the way to go for miniatures as opposed to terrain. So when you're you have your you found your file STL file of the miniature you want. Um, So now what's the process of getting that printed?
4: Um, So the process itself sounds really simple. There's a lot more intricacies for it. Uh, But just to get started, uh, you're going to want... kind of a few different things. So to start with, you have your file, you're going to put it into your slicer and you're going to build uh, supports with it. For most models, what I'd recommend is have them standing vertically. So we're just going to assume we're going to print your standard human warrior. Um, He's going to be standing up upright and you're going to tilt him back by about five or ten degrees or so. Um, That way the supports when you build them up are actually going to go on the bottom of his feet and his back. That way the front of the mini looks really, really nice still. There might be a couple of um, um, basically, what happens when the, you remove the support off the model, there sometimes are little divots and dimples that are left in the model. Um, that way, it's on the back of the model. Um, so, from there, uh, you're going to slice it uh, in your slicer program. Uh, most people use either Puresa slicer or g box And that will get your, once that's sliced, you put it on a USB stick, plug it into your printer, but you're not going to quite start yet. Um, Before you kind of start printing, you're going to make sure that you have resin in your tank. I know it sounds like a really funny thing to say. You'd be amazed how often that you kind of look at it going, hmm, there might not be a ref- resin in there. So you always want to top up your resin tank, uh, and you want to make sure that you have uh, your alcohol baths uh, ready to go, as well as I personally also use a water bath to clean off mine, and then also making sure that you have your paper towels and, more importantly, your gloves and your safety glasses ready to go.
2: I would also I would also say that you also need to make sure at that point that everything is screwed down correctly so that the uh, the build plate is screwed in correctly, the, uh, the resin tank is screwed in correctly, because I've forgotten that several times, and that inevitably leads to a print failure and all the hassle of clearing out a print failure from a resin printer.
5: So it sounds like it'd be helpful to have like a little checklist like when you're taking off on a plane, like, you know, green light check, blue light check, everything's like going through that list there's a lot of things you want to have set up before you press print right absolutely <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah.
1: You get, you get into the habit of it for sure uh, but yeah. even just yesterday i forgot to screw screw my build plate all the way down which thankfully didn't result in a print failure but like about halfway up my model it shifted a little bit so now my, the spears on that model just like go up and take a like a big curvy divot before they go straight again and it's like oh no 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 that's definitely
4: happened to me a couple times it's definitely a a checklist that you kind of get into muscle memory for but we're all human there's only so much we can do so after that you're going to let the the printer print Uh, once your model's done what my setup is is as soon as the, the model's done printing i usually leave it for about an hour or two to let uh, some of the uncured resin kind of drip off the models because you got to remember that when the build plate comes out of the resin tank, it's going to be hanging above the tank. So uh, all the extra resin or at least some of the extra resin will actually drip off the model itself. From there uh, you're going to take uh, most build plates just kind of screw off and you take the entire build plate off the, the Z axis arm. From there uh, you're going to have some paper towel laid out and then you're going to peel off the model and then from there, you can kind of put the bill plate to the side. Uh, you're going to take your, your models there. You're going to clean them. Depending upon how many baths you have, uh, I have a dirty bath, a clean bath, and then a water bath. So I'll wash it in the dirty bath, uh, which I'm actually using Mr. Clean. I don't know if they have that in the UK, but I know in the US they do. Because Mr. Clean is actually an alcohol-based solvent, it works really, really well to clean uh, the, the models off uh, for your initial print. Uh, and that way you're not using too much alcohol. Uh, from there, you're going to wash it in your second bath using isopropyl um, alcohol, uh, and then into the water bath to kind of help clean off um, some of the leftover uh, IPA, uh, because when IPA actually cooks in a UV chamber, it actually can turn into like this white powdery substance, uh, which is easy enough to wash off or clean off with a toothbrush. It's just another step that you don't want to take if you don't have to. From there, uh, you want to take off the supports. Uh, Like Param said, you're going to use tweezers and stuff like that to to remove them and clippers. Uh, Some supports just kind of snap off. Just be careful when you're taking off supports, because you don't want to break a piece of the model. So assuming that everything, all the supports came off nicely and everything like that, from there, uh, you're going to take your model, you're going to put it into the UV chamber uh, that you've made, uh, or maybe you're in a nice sunny area and you're going to leave it out to to kind of cure. Uh, from there, it goes into cleaning up after yourself. So just because all the, the sourcing off and everything doesn't mean you get to take off your gloves because you're like, oh, I'm not working with the model anymore. No. Uh, so you're going to Take all the support bits, all the uncured resin, all the paper towels. Uh, you're going to clean out your area, kind of dense everything together. And then I don't know about you guys. In school, we learned in chemistry and lab in high school uh, where you actually make a ball of everything in your two gloved hands. And you actually take off the gloves around the ball of paper towel. That way, none of the resin's touching you and you're going to throw it out. Safety is a huge thing. You know, it kind of sounds silly, like, oh, I'm not going to get resin on me. I'm going to be more careful. This stuff is toxic. You don't want this stuff on your skin. It will burn you. And the reason you're also wearing safety glasses is, again, it kind of sounds silly, but I want to make sure to stress this. When you're clipping off the supports or clipping off bits of uh, uh, anything, really, those little bits, as I'm sure all of us can attest in modeling, uh, can fly anywhere. Uh, You do not want this stuff in your eyes. Uh, so always wear glasses if you, for whatever reason, you can't wear glasses, uh, making sure that uh, it, the support is facing away from you so that if something does go flying, it's not going to go flying into your eyes. From there, once it's done curing in the chamber, it's basically done. You should be good to go. Most resins are super paint friendly. Uh, so at that point, you spray paint. Or prime with whatever method you normally do. Unlike a lot of models, you actually won't have any releasing agent or anything like that. So you don't really have to, you know, clean the model again. But
1: from there, you just paint it as normal. And I got some, just to back it up, I've had uh, resin on my skin before that I didn't notice. And and it did burn uh, me a little bit. Actually, mostly I got a rash. uh, And I got sick. uh, And I got resin in my eye once. Uh, which was a terribly painful experience and a little bit of a, a small panic. Uh, thankfully, we were able to get that washed out and everything was fine and healthy. But you really, really, really need to take the safety seriously. It's not super hard to do as long as you're careful and know what you're dealing with, like a power tool. But you, you, it is a miserable experience when when this stuff gets where you don't want it.
2: Absolutely. I think it's a good time to, to talk a little bit about safety because we have been talking about it because it, it is so intrinsic with the with the process of, of printing a mini. Like you guys say, the, the resin is is extremely toxic. One thing to be aware of is that it not only affects people differently because it's a lot of it's based around allergy, but also that you can build uh, an intolerance to it. So you may, you may start off in... There's, I'll, I'll come on to this in a second. There's there's some people in the uh, in the resin printed community who brag that they've touched raw resin or they get resin on the, the hands from time to time and it doesn't affect them. Therefore, it's fine. Well, firstly, there might be some people who can who can handle the raw resin without having a reaction, but also those people may well develop a massive intolerance in future. There was a guy last year who managed to accidentally spill some resin down his leg, and he said that previous times he's he's not had a massive reaction to um, resin spills, but he didn't clean it up properly this time, um, and he ended up having to go to hospital with some quite severe burns from the resin. So yeah you, you have to you have to be careful with the resin. you have to always be wearing gloves whenever you're handling anything that's not fully cured, you need to be quite aware of cross-contamination. So that's that's something that people are, are you know, coming to grips with with the uh, with the current pandemic is is about how if you touch a surface while contaminated, you need to clean that surface. So if if you're wearing your your gloves that have just been in a pool of resin, if you start touching stuff while you're with those gloves, you need to clean whatever you've touched as well.
5: Yeah, it's a good good point. It's always safety first, and especially. When you're in a you know a situation where you're making stuff and you're you're going from step to step to step, it's easy to like forget the incidental things where you're like, oh, I just picked something up off the counter or you know turn that knob or whatever. So you want to make sure that you're you know it, it's a mindful process. It's not just printing and then having something. It's like there's a, there are a few steps that are very important that you have to be paying attention to throughout the whole thing.
1: Right, and and and. It's absolutely important, but I don't want to scare potential people away from this. As long as you are taking this seriously, like you would say, like you're handling a power tool or a skill saw or, you know, there's just steps you need to take. And and if you've had any sort of uh, high school uh, biology lab or college biology lab where they talk about chemical safety, it's the same sort of thing. You, You just follow the safety steps. Make sure you wash uh, afterwards and and wash yourself afterwards, like this covid nineteen situation has really helped with that, and I am just like really glad for almost for resin printing because just because I'm resin printing, I'm washing my hands and arms very thoroughly several times a day, yeah so yeah absolutely.
5: There's distinct risks but it's they're manageable risks
2: absolutely, like I say, we don't want to to scare people away from it there's there's certainly. A lot of benefits to to the technology but equally nobody should go in unaware of the risks or not appreciating the potential risks and 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 not taking the safety seriously just take the safety seriously you'll be fine if you don't take the safety seriously uh, i want to say please don't get a resin printer if you wouldn't take the safety seriously
5: so now that we've talked about the general process We've used terms like you know supports, auto supports, and all the different like the the with the slicing software. So you know, like let's talk about those terms a little bit more, and also just like what what is the minimum amount of tinkering needed to get a, a good print? And like obviously, the sky's a limit. Probably with sculpting your own stuff. I think Nick, you've done some of that, but yeah. So what's like the minimum, and what's like where where's the limit for like a commercial printer and let's just talk about like a little bit more about what some of those terms that you were using before like I know even you're talking about supports and slicing software and stuff like that
4: yeah so um, yeah so basically everyone kind of has their own. Process and if you ask ten printers what their process is, you're going to get ten different answers. Um, so I'm sure Param and I'm not sure Nick, you guys have your own stuff. I'm sure it's absolutely lovely to use. I'm just going to go con from my own experience. Uh, so for me, I actually do a two-step process. So I actually do all my supports uh, within Persa Slicer. They have a, I find a very nice uh, integration system. It's very user-friendly. And what I actually found was that Persa Slicer, their auto supports are actually a decent starting point but it's not a finishing point so getting it will get all your general points done and then from there you're just going to kind of shore things up things like if there's only a single point going to the tip of the sword and the sword reaches all the way up going vertically for the next like 10 millimeters or so one support probably isn't going to do that so you might want to double up the supports on that and kind of go through it and shore up the auto supports Uh, if you think something's may not print properly it's always usually always best to have a bit more support than kind of chanting it because if you don't do enough supports, you can have failed prints, you can have pancake prints, uh, which is when something basically looks like a pancake and flattens out uh, because the supports break off and it stays on the film, the FEP film that we talked about earlier until the rest of the, the print can actually lift it off the print. And that's when you get like a wing that's supposed to be, you know, 20 millimeters tall is now five, but it's super, super flat. Um, so
5: just, just just a little point. So like a support is kind of like, correct me if I'm wrong, but like a support is kind of like where the sprue connects to the miniature. Where like, but it's also to help support the miniature since we're printing up out of the resin, so it kind of helps prop it up.
2: Absolutely. So a support is there because you can't have something hanging in space when you're when you're coming to a 3D print. There has to be something connecting sort of the very bottom of whatever it is, that could be a sword hilt or something, It's it's got to connect it all the way to the print plate or another part of the print. And so Great. support is is basically just a stick, which means that every lowest point of the model is connected to the build plate. So and it's then, not hanging
5: in space. And then various softwares will create those for you, or you can add them in depending on your experience and what you think will happen when while the manager is being printed.
4: Yeah, no, uh, if you want to think of it, think of it as scaffolding around a building, uh, because that's basically what it looks like. Yeah, so it's definitely, uh, they're called islands, uh, if you're looking through the forms. And basically every island that you have needs to be attached to either the model itself, if it's higher up on the model, uh, or attached to the build plate itself using these little scaffolding supports. So from there... Uh, I export once I feel comfortable with the the model and support structure. Uh, Persis Lesser has a nice feature where you can actually export the STL, including all of the supports that you've just added to it, to make it a new STL file. Um, like we said before, the STL is the file format that we use for 3D printing. Uh, from there, I upload it into Che2Box, because I find that Che2Box does a better uh, system for hollowing the model, if it's a bigger model. Um, you're not really going to hollow you know, a whole bunch of little goblins. Uh, but if you have a big griffin, for example, uh, you're going to want to hollow out the body if you can. And like if it's standing on a rock, I just it uses it, it kind of saves a bit on resin uh, as well as makes it uh, basically more cost efficient. And I find that Chutu box for hollowing and drilling holes is a lot better than Persis slicers. Just because Pierce the Slicer, they just got Halloween on their system, and I find that it's not as user-friendly as g 2 box you, If you are using an Elegoo Mars, which is the printer that I use, uh, you have to slice your software in g 2 box If not, the printer doesn't read it properly. And then so from there, T2Box will slice it. From it being sliced, it'll give you uh, a couple information all said and done. Uh, So it'll tell you roughly how much uh, resin will be used in milliliters, uh, which is how you actually uh, calculate how much resin you need. uh, Because the bottles usually come in 500 milliliters or one liter bottles. It'll also give you a time on how long it's going to take, as well as the the slicing preview. So it'll actually show you a preview for each layer um, that it goes through. Uh, And layer height can vary. Uh, Usually the default is uh, 0.05 millimeters, so it's, what, 50 microns, I believe it is, which is very, very fine quality, which is why you don't really see layer lines unless you're looking really, really, really close to the model. So that's kind of my support system. I don't know if Param or Nick, if you guys use a different method, uh, but that's the method that I found that works really, really well for me, and it's not too often that I have a super fail of a print.
2: Yeah, mine's, mine's very similar. Um, I, I I just use TutorBox myself. I don't I don't use any other software. I'll bring the model in. I'll put it to the a rough sort of orientation that I just go on instinct now as to to what the orientation of the model should be. I use TutorBox's auto support function, which gets it about I'd, I'd say about seventy five percent of the way there. And then you go in and you add extra spots as well. Uh, when it comes to layer heights, I usually look at doing either uh, 0.03 or 0.04. I find that personally 0.05 doesn't give enough detail. And when you are, especially when you are painting, I find the 0.05, the layer lines are still quite noticeable.
1: If my process, I wish I was quite as thorough as as these uh, my my colleagues here, but I mostly just use the the pressure slicer uh, option that uh, was mentioned before. And I find that like about ninety percent of the time, I don't need to add any extra supports. Now, of course, I find out when the ten percent of the time happens because I have to I failed print. And for most of the time, I, the 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 pressure slicer, support system i find better than g 2 box so and both these programs are free you can just download both of these programs and there's lots of tutorials on how to use them uh so pressure slicer auto supports go over to g 2 box to print and and then i'm done uh, and thankfully a lot of models now are either supportless uh and or a whole lot of the commercial uh, uh, mini makers for the STL files are starting to offer pre supported models that have been like very expertly supported with like as few supports that are needed as possible. Uh, and you can just if you have a pre supported model file, that is literally just grab it off the uh, the file and throw it on the plate and print it.
3: Awesome. So, um, Eamon, just you just mentioned the printer you're using there, but it might be worth going through each of you and telling us, you know, what printer you're using, uh, how you would rate it in terms of newbie friendliness, and if there's any printers you've seen that you think might be more newbie friendly. Uh, so, uh, uh, Eamon, start with starting with the one that you mentioned already. What what what's the printer you're using again?
4: Yeah, so uh, my resin printer is called the Elegoo Mars. I find that uh, it was the most user-friendly, also one of the most cost-effective printers out there. Uh, I had it printing the test uh, piece, which is a a fairly intricate Rook piece, uh, within 15, 20 minutes of uh, opening it up, setting it up, and, and leveling the bed. I find that it's fairly good. The advantage of the Elegoo Mars, I find, is because it's... Been around for a little bit longer it's not one of the newer resin printers uh, is that a lot of the design flaws or a lot of the the issues with it have either been rectified and fixed in later editions or fairly simple to find up on the forms to kind of troll through the forms of it and, and find the solution um, so i use the elegoo mars printer and i also use the elegoo uh, resin for me it was just oh when i was ordering it off of amazon i can get the resin at the same time cool i'll order the resin and i find that it works quite well fairly new user friendly uh what i like is that the usb uh that comes with the printer uh, actually a g2 box on it so i didn't have to go and, and dig through the online and find the the download file everything was kind of just on the the flash drive ready to go and ready to install the software on your computer
3: how about you param uh, what's what brand are you using and would you say it was newbie friendly
1: yeah, I'm also using the Elgoo L- L- Mars, and it is uh, very newbie friendly. There's a, it's also you know one of the the cheaper entry levels, not the absolute cheapest, but fairly cheap, a couple hundred bucks. And my resin of choice is the Soraya Tech ABS like fast resin, which they name these things so funny. But the Sorea Tech fast resin, uh, I like it because it doesn't have much of a smell; you barely notice it. And it is a uh, fairly newbie friendly resin that is a little bit more flexible than some of the older or traditional resins out there. So your, your spears will bend a little before they break, and the models are just a little bit more durable. It doesn't have quite the crisp detail that uh, some of the other resins can do, but for my, it definitely looks better than anything a Reaper Bones can do in detail. And uh, it's, a, it's, it's pretty, pretty nice minis.
2: And Nick? Uh, I have the AnyCubic Photon S. Um, the AnyCubic Photon was kind of the the go-to resin printer for a while, and the S was the upgraded version. I I, I don't have any any uh, any context for how newbie-friendly printers are. Um, I'd say it's probably not any any more newbie-friendly or unfriendly than than any other basic printer for resin. I use the AnyCubic Grey resin. Not for any particular reason, just because I've got the settings dialed in for my my printer and that resin, and uh, I, I don't want to go through the hassle of uh, trying out a new resin and having to dial in the settings and figure out the settings. The, the any cubic grey works. It's it's a bit brittle. I prefer something a bit a bit softer, like like you were saying just now. Um, but honestly, the the, the time and effort dialing settings. I, I think I'll just stick with the anycubic gray.
4: I think it's worth pointing out that um, different resins take different cure times. Like Nick was saying, that it takes a little bit to dial in. Uh, I, for example, use the anycubic blue. I find that it works quite well. Uh, or not cubic, the yellow gumars blue. Uh, now, different color resins and or lack of color will actually affect how long it takes to cure each layer Um, so just because you have a file that worked really really great for the gray resin you have if you use a absolutely transparent resin it's going to have issues in terms of you're probably going to need longer exposure times uh, to get it to cure properly so it does take a little bit of fiddling to make sure you have the right settings for the resin you're going to use another thing to point out is that you can actually like nick said some of the resins are really brittle you can actually mix resins together I can't remember exactly what it's called right now, uh, but there's actually a resin that's completely bendable um, that a lot of people will uh, mix in with their regular resins, anywhere from uh, one part uh, of the flexible resin, nine part of your regular resin, uh, mixes together to give your models that little bit of give before they'll snap. Uh, I've never actually used the uh, ABS-style resin, Um, so apparently you can jump in on this. But if you're just using standard stock resin, like Nick said, it is a little bit brittle, but you can mix it with other resins without really too much of an issue uh, to kind of help give that flexibility.
1: Right. Ironically, uh, with the ABS, like the fast ones, I'm using people... Uh, instead mix in harder resins to to toughen it up a little bit, but to give it a little bit more structure. Uh, And I know that that, uh, a lot of people use this resin that I use to soften down other resins. So, like, I'm using the soft stuff. They're using the hard stuff. And a lot of this is really just preference and the the cure times and and settings. You'll have a good starting place on the manufacturer's websites or certainly the forums. If it's a popular resin, somebody in a popular printer, somebody has got like a, a setting that you can find that like this is what works well. Um, and I find that like talking about your resin mix is a lot like talking to granny about what her cake mixes are and, and people debating different recipes on, on what they're going to be making uh, for dinner or uh, how they're going to, you know, prime their pickle jars. It's everybody's got a, a formula or a recipe that they like.
2: So absolutely. And a, a lot of the, the um, sort of discussions about what is the the perfect mix you have to understand that that is that is really pushing for the absolute best. Like you, you can take most settings, which I'll come on to in a second, because I wanted to add a little bit to that. Um, like you can take the, the the standard mixes, and it's like eighty eighty ninety percent of the way to to perfection, right there. And just the all the tweaking around the absolute perfect settings and the perfect mixes and everything. That's all just getting it a little bit further, but uh, so the out-of-the-box, so to speak, is is more than good enough. What I would say on the settings is that uh, you do have to dial it in for your specific printer as well. So the someone may well have printed perfectly fine with a certain set of settings on their printer, which is the same model as your printer, but your printer has a slight, is slightly underpowered or slightly overpowered compared to theirs. I know that my Photon S, I have to increase the exposure times by about twenty percent compared to other people with Photon S's, just because for whatever reason mine doesn't seem as powerful as as another person's photon s. And also, uh,
1: this is a technology that is rapidly developing. I mean, two years ago, this was a lot more expensive and a lot more hassle than it is today. And even today, like when I first got started, there are resins that have come out since I got started a few months ago that are – you know have different properties or doing things we didn't think was possible. There's now resin you can actually just clean with pure water and don't even need uh, solvents. There's resin that they're putting out there that's less toxic, uh, not not toxic. We have yet to find not toxic resin and you know is is more nature friendly or biodegradable. There's just a lot of movement in this space. So what we say about any given technology, is going to probably be outdated in a couple of months when the new cool stuff comes out. Like I know the Elegoo Saturn was just announced, which is basically we talked about how they were doing phone screens, and that was one of the big limitations of the printer. But when now there's are cheap big screens like used on tablets. So pretty soon for not that much more money, we're going to be able to get printers that can print resin Ah, uh, files the same size as a FDM printers can on the uh, on the entry level.
2: I think at that point you're going to be printing entire, of well, multi-piece units in in one. Whereas at the moment the the print the uh, the print beds are not big enough to do that. Ooh, that's nice.
3: And actually, it brings me on to one of the things we want to talk about, which one of the reason people might get into resin printing. For their miniatures is to save money, right? If you look at how much uh, GW miniatures cost, and even semantic miniatures these days, uh, they're pretty expensive. With you know resin printing, to me, if we haven't scared people off, um, it sounds quite complex. But is it expensive compared to buying miniatures? Where you know, where's that price point in terms of is it a cheaper option for getting your miniatures?
2: So the 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 actual resin itself is it's certainly more expensive than the plastic for plastic printers, but it's still pennies per miniature. However, you've got a lot of other costs taken into consideration. There's, there's costs like your all your personal protection gear, all the extras that you've got to buy with the printer. There's buying the printer in the first place. That's that's quite a big expense up front to get that. Um, but then you also have various consumables. You have the the uh, the FEP that we talked about, that film that sits at the bottom of the the resin vat. You need to have replacements for that. You'll occasionally have to replace the the screen. It's not free. It's fairly cheap. I would guesstimate that you would kind of need to print, I'd say around two armies worth of miniatures to break even compared to just buying the miniatures from Reaper or something.
4: Yeah. Just to give you guys an idea. Um, so I'm actually printing a set of goblins uh, for one somebody in our gaming group. So I it's 30 goblins. There's three different kind of sculpts to it. They all look relatively similar to each other. It's going to be uh, about 4 ish dollars worth of resin to print 30 goblins. Uh, I'm charging $20 to print it because, uh, like Nick said, there is a lot of other things to consider. Because you're looking at gloves, paper towel, buying alcohol and or some sort of solvent, uh, the time to run everything because I had to build my UV chamber and everything like that. Um, so I'm charging $20 to print that. Um, now that's for 30 goblins. So it's still, even if you yourself aren't printing it or somebody in your gaming group's printing it for you, uh, it still is relatively cost effective. But when you include all the other kind of costs and everything like that, you know, I'm making a couple bucks off this just to kind of keep my resin printing going and or kind of saving up for the bigger printers. Uh, like uh, Param said, like the Elegoo Saturn is coming out soon. I really do want to buy it. So I'm kind of saving up a bit of money. So it kind of helps offset the costs if you're uh, printing it yourself, uh, but also if you're printing it for a bit of a gaming group or don't mind like kind of renting out your uh, printer for lack of a better term uh, to help print STL files for other people, it kind of helps offset the the cost of it as well.
1: Yeah. Um, just to get into like some, you know, just some specific numbers. It's like right now you can pick up an Elegumars int- which is a really good entry level uh, uh, printer for like two hundred and thirty dollars, uh, give or take, given on what sales are available at any given time. Uh, the tank of resin that I use is thirty five dollars per uh, milliliter, or sorry, per liter and i get on average somewhere between 80 and 120 minis out of one single bottle of resin and just the the, the getting started supplies when i was buying all of this and this was just a few months ago so i've got this fresh in my brain it was like all all in to get my first print done all the cleaning supplies was about 300 to get started and since then replacing the cleaning supplies I've had to spend about $20 more dollars on replacing all the cleaning supplies I've used and getting new resin. I think I've been through seven bottles now and printing armies for everybody. And your your average bottle of resin, like I said, I was able to print an entire Not Stalker's army and then some on one bottle of resin, an entire dwarf army, and then some on another bottle of resin. My League of Rordia army, which is about 3,000 points worth of League of Rordia right now, I got on a bottle and a half. And it's probably about 200 minis in that. And I'm counting, like, mounted minis. If all you're doing is, like, foot soldiers and medium-sized RPG models, uh, you will get more out of it. But I like printing, like siege weapons and and vehicles and big cool chocobos to ride around on and, and mounted minis
3: awesome so we've talked about stl files um where do you where do you guys get your stl files from if you're just printing somebody else's design uh, what's the common resources where's what's the best place to go do you have any kind of favorite sites patreon stuff like that where, where do you start
2: so i know you guys are into your patreons i'm not particularly myself. So I'll, I'll go through the, the basic sites. Uh, I think there's there's basically two main sites for files. Uh, one of them being thingiverse.com um, and also cults3d.com. Or cults? Is it cults or cults3d? It's cults3d.com. Uh, Thingiverse is quite slow to use, but it is the biggest site. cults 3D is a lot quicker, but it doesn't have as many models. So I do generally find that the cults3d models are of a higher quality than on thingiverse
4: yeah thingiverse is kind of just a dumping ground for you know hey look i had this cool idea so i'm gonna post it online and everyone will love it and love me uh where <laughs> Cults 3d has a bit more of a i want to say premium not to say yeah, that you have to pay some uh you know premium to just access the site itself. There are a lot of free files on Colts, but they do have uh, unlike Thingiverse, uh, where you can if you choose to tip the designer, whereas Colts three d some prints you physically have to purchase. That being said, the other website uh, is my Mini factory is another really, really great site that I found a lot of uh, good STL files on. Uh, again, it's they have some free stuff, they have some paid stuff from my own personal experience. Uh, I also do a lot of patreons. My current couple favorites is uh, Lord of the Print, Artesian Guild, and if you guys know uh, Raging Heroes, the company that produces some absolutely gorgeous miniatures, they actually just did a, a Patreon called uh, Heroes Infinite, uh, and they are actually are now releasing STL files. Uh, and a fun tidbit of fact, uh, the same, a lot of the designers for Artesian Guild are actually the same designers for Raging Heroes, so they're very similar to each other and work very, very well with each other. For Patreons, if you've never heard of a Patreon before, basically it's a subscription website where you can pledge X amount of dollars a month to a person. And depending on how many uh, or how much dollars you put towards the person, unlocks different tiers, which gives you different access to things. Uh, with most STL Patreons, it's usually A difference of, you know, if I pledge $5 a month, I get three small figures. But if I pledge $10 a month, I get those three figures plus two medium figures and one large figure. And there are hundreds of Patreons out there for STL files. And basically, it's a recurring subscription. Uh, A lot of Patreons do um, kind of uh, if you've been with us for three months, here's a free, really cool mini to kind of help entice people to continue uh, their subscription. So that's how kind
1: of Patreons work in a nutshell. And for me, I like to start on Thingiverse to see if there's something free that will take care of my need, Um, because Thingiverse is like huge and you're definitely going to get, you know, Bobby's first finger painted 3d model on there, but you're also going to find a lot of cool free models. And a lot of the professional modelers like to put a couple of free models each month on the thingiverse that you can access, but it also serves as like advertisement to say, Hey, look at this cool model we can make. If you come pay us money, we can sell you even more cool models like this. Um, And the models are fairly. uh, For the professional high grade models, if you're buying them one off, Honestly, it's almost the same price as buying the one-off version of it. If I was to go to my local game store, it's like a single character somewhere between three and five dollars on average for the for a high-end, very good quality STL file. And then, like a pack of troops is like ten bucks for a high-end STL file group. Uh, but the, of course, the difference is is you pay that cost once and then print infinite number of them. So you buy the three soldiers you're going to want in your legion and then you print the entire legion worth of them and patreon is of course great there are some fantastic patreons out there where you get like dozens of models per month now artisan guild is obviously everyone's favorite but i really think for kings of war players to take a look at uh, cast and play and monstrous encounters and titan forge uh, which are usually about ten dollars a month, pledge in, and they each release like twenty, thirty plus models a month, uh, with a with wargaming specifically in mind. Uh, so there's like all the soldiers usually have a variation of poses, and you can customize them with like dozens of different weapons and armors and stuff. Which is you know one of the big advantages of three D printing that I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute is that you're not just limited to what other people do, even if you don't have a lot of artistic 3D modeling skill, you get to print pretty much exactly what you want to come out with. If you're willing to put the time in it, it's real easy to customize things either with the tools they give you or with the tools that you can find out there. And for most part, I have never been for want of a model. I'm always able to find something or kit bash something together.
3: Yeah. So how about uh a, designing your own files so I, I know um Eamon and Nick you've both uh, gone in with two feet in terms of designing stuff particularly Nick when you were you were getting ready your ogres you designed whole kind of parts for them and stuff how you know how do you go about getting started in designing your own stuff
2: do you want to take it first Eamon and then I'll uh, I'll go on to the actual sculpting side because I think you're mostly combining models is that right
4: uh, actually, I think that's param. Uh, my only real designs Sorry. I've done is uh, the stairs, and then I just did um, magnetic basing, and I made an entire for every single Kings of War base size. I have the troop size that you can actually use uh, magnets for to uh, magnetize the bases to build them up to legions. But I'm not. I'm gonna step out of this conversation. I I have very very limited knowledge of sculpting, and/or building things. I'm very very basic and very very geometric in that sense.
2: Oh, well,
1: I. I'm, i let Nick go first on this one because, yeah, I am doing a lot of combining, but I am using that as a venue to also learn how to do custom sculpting myself, uh, which I've been in studying and taking classes on and, and learning. Uh, so, uh, I'll, so you go first, gang.
2: Sure, thank you. So I kind of have a little bit of a background in terms of 3D design. When I was uh, a teenager, I was a, I, I did a lot of modding work for Half-Life. So making add-ons for the game Half-Life, which is where I I learned a lot about 3D modeling and design. Now, it's not something that I'd really uh, touched that much since university, but I was was able to, I kind of had that foundation knowledge of uh, just how to think in 3D, which is actually a big aspect of uh, 3D design. What I do is uh, I use and I use a program called Blender, which is free to download. And I, I use that to design and build my own models. There's tons of tutorials out there on how to how to build it. it you can do uh, geometry modeling, which is where you just basically take cubes and other shapes, and you um, move corners around, you add corners, move them around, and and all the rest of it to come up with with quite um, I would say. Uh, mechanical objects physical objects but then there's also a sculpting mode which is where you you do something much much more akin to traditional sculpting very similar to how you'd work with green stuff you have a lot of the uh, similar tools but you have things like an undo function and you have you can add material all the time you can't you're not having to mix up green stuff and and work with uh with green stuff and all the rest of it, but yeah, I, I design and make my own models through through Blender. I've followed a lot of tutorials. I'd say it's it's taken me about uh, it's taken me about a year, I'd say, to get fairly proficient at, at designing my own models. I'm not the best by any stretch, and I'm sure if somebody dedicated their time, they could get really good in um, a much shorter timescale. So when I'm designing models, I will quite often use my fdm prints my plastic printer to make some very quick printouts i'm constantly printing out little bits and pieces just to check things like sizing and make sure that it fits on the model that i'm printed for so, so i should say that i don't design full miniatures i i will make parts to customize them so for my ogre army that you alluded to i've made extra parts for them i've made different guns for them to hold and different arms for them, all the rest of it. So what I do is I use my FDM printer to quickly print stuff out in fairly low quality um, just to make sure that I've got the size right, that the connections fit and all the rest of it. And once I'm happy with that, I can start printing it on a resin printer to make sure that it's uh, that it fits properly in full detail. And for me, I've been uh,
1: doing a whole lot... Of getting started with, with what we've been calling uh, kit bashing or 3D kit bashing, where I get base models or pieces of models. You can actually find uh, uh, for a lot of the the models out there, they also make available like all the weapons and hands and stuff. So you, I find a model that's 90% of the way I want it or just has a really cool feature. It's like, but I don't want him to have a sword. I want him to have an axe or I need this character on a mount so that I can have a cavalry unit and you're able to you know, just go into you know, Blender or Mesh Mixer. Mesh Mixer is a lot more user friendly, but it's more limited in what you can do. Blender is a full-on professional grade 3D design program. So the the learning curve to get started in it is a little steep, but worth it in my opinion. And you're basically able to like slice off a hand here, put it on that model, take this model's head off and put your own cool head on here. Um, go into the sculpt mode and literally rescope their face so that the face expressions are are more akin to what you wanted the thing to do. That was my very first uh, kit bash was using uh, a I started with a Hero Forge file, uh, which is a a piece of software online where you mostly marketed towards like D&D and making character models, custom character models in D&D. So I put together my character for my role-playing game in Hero Forge because I wanted to use him as the general in my Kings of War Army. And then I was able to be like, well, that's not even, that's only like 70% close to the commissioned artwork I've had for this character. So I was able to pull that into Blender, go into sculpt mode, and literally resculpt the face to match the artwork by by even like layering the the artwork over top of the mini in the background and just pulling the parts into exactly where they needed to be. And then uh, he was a halfling, so uh, I had to plump him up a bit. So I had to like actually make him fatter, which was relatively easy. And then I was like, well, I want him to be posed. Can I repose a Hero Forge model? And the answer is absolutely. By adding an armature to it, which you can use with uh, a free website called Mixamo for human-shaped things, or it's fairly simple to add a basic rigging armature in in most 3D programs, I was able to go from, I wonder if I can repose him so that he can fit on this mount, to, oh, not only can I do that an hour later, I have him dancing to J-pop music and uh, animated So I could completely control everything about the character and and make him do exactly what I wanted. And that has just sort of like getting more and more deep into the kit bashing and then making custom parts because I, I couldn't find the part out there. So here I'll design this dagger I need or I need to really mask the fact that these two things were joined together. So I'm going to make the body part that joins them together in custom sculpting has really kickstarted my education on, uh, on, on learning 3d sculpting to where I'm getting closer and closer and closer now to doing my own models completely from scratch. And I really look forward to the day that I'm able to do that. And all that's really only reason I am getting to do this and experiencing this really fulfilling uh experience of learning to do an art form is because of kings of war because they encourage us to customize stuff and let us use our own stuff and i if if it wasn't for kings of war and my my little sis wanting to get into a war game i would never have known that i had this passion for designing 3d objects
5: that's awesome it's like we have this community that like you know drives us to do. More than just the gaming, like the actual hobby, and then now we have all this technology to like really fully explore that. So like that sounds like a pretty big success for you. Like your your general. Um, are there any like specific like highlights that you guys have had with your own designing and printing? Like what your biggest success or your know, most your favorite project so far that you've designed?
2: So I I can think of two. the The first time that I really set out to really get into sculpting and stuff was a couple of years ago for uh lone wolf gt where i took a, a mantic abyssal army but i uh sculpted a custom head and arm and weapon for my Archfiend. now at the time i didn't have a resin printer i was able to send it off to uh a, a website which is 3dhubs.com and they basically do print on demand miniatures of whatever needs 3D printing. And I was able to sculpt and print custom parts for my arch And that was that was really my first venture with, with doing something like that. Now, what I'm doing at the moment with my ogres is really customising them. So I wanted to use the GW ogres run the Mantic ones. I've I've got several ogre armies and I I felt like having a change for the Mantic ones and with the, with the GW Ogre ones but I was really struggling because things like Ogre Boomers I'm, I'm really not a fan of the, the GW models for that so I sculpted custom arms to uh, be holding blunderbusses which the GW Ogres don't have so that's been really rewarding getting, getting them working and getting them to fit onto the GW Ogre models so I'd say those are my two greatest successes yes. at the moment
5: I remember uh, seeing your progress like pictures of your Archfiend c- sculpting, and that was kind of like at the early stages, I think, well, that I noticed 3D printing getting being used with people's armies. So I think those are really cool. It's a cool use of like, instead of just printing here, I'm going to print a whole new army using these STLs. Like, I'm just going to, change and modify existing things, add a little bit of more character that you, you know, to fit your vision for your army. So it's not just about printing whole miniatures or like this cool STL file. It's about like, I have this miniature that I, I like, but I want to add a little bit more Zazz that fits my vision for my army. So I think it's a really cool way to use it, use the technology for yourself or for the hobby.
2: Oh, thank you very much. That's, that that's generally how I, approach to 3D printing. I'm I am i am less interested in printing entire miniatures. I, I want to use it to print custom parts and to, to really convert and make armies my own. So
5: it's cool. It's cool to watch the process. Like for people who've been involved in the hobby, like we've all have these boxes of bits and we've all been kit bashing things since we chopping and got our razor saws and watching like, you know, the old reading the old white dwarf how to convert their head swap, this and that. And now you get to like Just make a head and just put that on, or make a new weapon and put that on, like kind of like what Perrin was talking about with his general. It's like you can just make the conversion parts now. See, I think that's an awesome, awesome uh, avenue to use 3D printing. How about you, uh, Eamon? Uh, I know you're talking about your basing, so that's pretty, that's a more like functional multi basing approach to 3D printing that is not, uh, also not just about making miniatures. So tell us about those.
4: Yeah, so I am not artistically uh, inclined in the least. Uh, I see stuff that Param and Nick are doing and I'm just absolutely amazed by it. So for me, it's definitely more of a, more of an accessories point of view. My, probably my biggest success apart from printing the miniatures themselves uh, were the stairs uh, that I mentioned earlier. And it it was a very simple uh, idea and concept uh, which I was really happy to help execute. And all it was, was we've all had wobbly model syndrome. Kings of War is probably a little bit worse for it because we have giant bases and some of them are really awesome and intricate, but as a result, don't particularly like hills too much. So the steps that I designed were just a uh, little half inch increments uh, to slide underneath the bases so that your miniatures can be on the hill where they're supposed to be and as flat as you can really get them, especially <laughs> for a tournament setting um, to make sure that everything's kind of nice and even. Uh, so my only other current project that I decided to do uh, was that I am an absolute uh, stickler for somebody who likes options. I love the fact that, for me, I want to be able to mix and match everything. Um, I magnetized my entire Tau army, uh, including all of my crisis suits and everything, to give you an idea of how much I want options. Uh, so for me, I decided to design simple accessories for Kings of War, stuff that... It is kind of out there, but not always out there. Uh, so I'm just trying to f- kind of fill in the, the gaps and the holes that I see. So for the the bases that I did, uh, they're actually they're flat bases, so you can d- put on whatever terrain or basin that you want to do. But they're all designed uh, with three millimeter diameter by four millimeter long barrel magnets to be placed inside them, so that you can actually magnetize. Uh, everything that's on a troop base and that way they all connect to each other seamlessly to create regiments and hordes and legions as well as i designed uh, damage trackers for both d6s and d20s that actually magnetize to the back of the base and that way the damage kind of follows the the unit around so that's kind of what i've been focusing on and kind of playing around with it was uh, a very simple concept in comparison to some of the you know uh ideas like sculpting and, and within blender and kit bashing and mesh mixer I just used it on Tinkercad which is a great starting uh, if you're just using very geometric designs uh, it's a great starting point it's a lot of fun it's very user friendly so for like my bases, I just thought of everything that I I could what I want to have a base so it has a leader point that's very defined uh, it's actually a very simple uh 45 degree point at the front of the the base and there's also space underneath so that you can actually put barrel magnets underneath the the base to magnetize it so that it'll stick to uh, a metal tray for transport but i'm very very simple in my designs and what i'm trying to accomplish uh in comparison to to param and nick who are I feel are doing proper hobbying and modeling uh, in the sense of making sure that we have models and uh, bits and stuff like that. So my stuff is very simple. It works fairly well as far as I can tell. Um, And it's just little, uh, little uh, basically quality of life upgrades for Kings of War.
5: Well, I can attest to the quality of life improvement of this. I think you sent, you gave us each four sets of the steps before best of the rest i think turn two of game one i had all four sets in use because the hills were were large and my army is all metal and slate so it does not like hills it tip they t- everything tips over all the time so you know I was, the, the steps were great and i think i took i saw some of your bases before the lockdown started so i think using the technology to improve the hobby like across the board it's like conversions whole miniatures multi-basing gaming aids i think it lets you really just make what you think you need, or like what you realize you need to make the game smoother or more enjoyable. And I think the damage trackers—that's a big one. That's, I think that's cool. Like you just like you know magnetize a damage tracker onto the back of a unit base. Like that's genius. So I think you know it's not just about miniatures. I think that's a good common message now. It's like it's, you can do—you can just make things that make the game better, which is awesome. How about you, Param? Like other than your your general, your halfling custom general, mm-hmm. what other uh, projects do you think have been a good success or a big success for you?
1: My my two favorites right now, um, one is for on the artistic side, and one is on the practical side. And actually, uh, in, in, inspired by his bases, I actually got to modify uh, mine a bit because of how great a job his magnetized bases were. But the the one that I'm most proud of is when my father saw that I was getting into this game and and, and with, with my younger sibling, wanted to just join in and, and play with us. So I uh, we went through all the books and, and had him pick out an army and he wanted to play dwarves. Now, the lockdown is happening. I can't very easily go out and buy an army box of dwarves. So I turned to the 3D printer and started putting together a list of free dwarves for him to play. And then I got to the Brock Riders. And I could have put my dwarves on horses or ponies or goats or some of the other options that are out there fairly easily. But the idea of half-naked, axe-wielding, barbarian dwarves on badgers is one of the coolest parts of Kings of War, in my opinion. I wanted badger dwarves. And there are very few badgers out there that would be suitable for a mount. And also very few half-naked barbarians that would ride a mount. So I went and found some of my favorite dwarf barbarian models and reposed them into riding positions and found a armored bear models that are on Thingiverse and shrank the bears and then re-sculpted their faces and bodies to be badgers, which was surprisingly easier than I thought it was going to be and then put the dwarves on the badgers. But in order to do that, some of these models were absolutely not designed to be reposed at all. Uh, we had clipping issues and, and pieces attached to other pieces. It's just like the nightmare uh, models for doing this with. So I had to learn how to completely manipulate and, and, and re-sculpt uh, some of the body parts in order to get them in. And, one of, and a good example of this is once I had them on the badgers and ready to go, I looked at their feet and they were all designed to stand on bases. So their feet were completely flat and thin and not really usable. But now that they had their feet up in the air pointed forward, it was just like real glaring. You could see that this was uh, this was a kit bash, not how this was originally designed. So I chopped off all their feet and then custom designed feet from scratch that I think look really great. By following uh, tutorials, and then I custom designed a mug to slap on the back of one of them to hide the seam line, and I reposed the weapons on another. Uh, one of the uh, half naked dwarves uh, was, I wanted to have a, some female dwarves mixed in there. Unfortunately, it's a dwarf from Artisan Guild who half naked is being generous, and this is my dad I'm talking about, so I had to sculpt some clothes for her to wear to make it a little less half naked. And basically, uh, I was able to just flex all the aspects that I had been learning so far of modifying minis, combining minis, resculpting, making things from scratch, until I have these this group of Brock riders that in my opinion, just look amazing and and I love them to death. And I did that one afternoon. I guess I spent probably about six hours working on these, which is a lot longer than I usually take, but I was just having so much fun tweaking individual details and I want to get them just right. And then uh, I, when I went to bed, I put them on the printer and go print me a dozen of these so I can have a, a, a regimen of these uh, for, for him to use. And then when I woke up in the morning and, and got them cleaned up and I was, the thing I had designed the night before I was holding in my hand, a whole dozen Brock riders that did not exist. And I know nobody else in the world has Brock riders like this. And I was able to do that for him and give him, here you go. Here is the most ridiculous model I can think of. They look amazing. They're really cool. And go forth and play. And that's like probably my favorite. And my second favorite one is... More of the practical side, and the reason I'm mentioning this is because it's going to help the whole community out, is I play this game and I wanted my minis to pull double duty because like I said, I'm really big into the role playing game, the Pathfinder, Starfinder, DND side of things. So I have this uh, shelf full of literally probably about 10,000 DND minis that I can use for this game, but the but most DND models anymore are on twenty five millimeter round bases which is not 20 millimeter square bases that I need to use for regiments. And it's easy enough to like carve some stuff out of foam and and MDF, which is what I started to do. And then about halfway through building my first set of custom carved out of foam MDF trays to carry these minis in, I realized, wait, no, I have a print. I have a magic printer that makes things I think of. Why am I doing this by hand with a knife and styrofoam? I went into the software. I started completely from blank, and it's like this is I'm gonna go take a, a few classes to make sure I've learned everything right. And I designed up a set of movement trays that were regiment sized and troop sized, and and I'm hoping to expand that for all the different unit types. That will take 25 mil that have little slots in it that you can just throw in the 25 millimeter bases in order so that you can just use D&D minis and Kings of War. And when I print out Kings of uh, my Minis for this, I can put them on 25-millimeter round bases so that I can take my really cool Barbarian Dwarf and then use him in an encounter uh, next week uh, for my uh, Pathfinder game, when we get out of lockdown, of course. And so I was inspired by when I saw the Magnetaz bases, so I added little magnets into it, and I just started to really polish these up, and they and and they look really nice, and they're really professional. And it was like that's the first thing I created from absolute scratch, that is a legitimate product that people would like to have. And so I was super proud of getting that done. And and uh, it's like you can fit like I based it on how many minis I can fit onto a troop base possible. This isn't like conservative. Really cool creative multi-basing. It's like literally, oh, on a standard regiment with 25 millimeter rounds, you can physically fit 12 uh, round-based minis on that thing, and you cannot squeeze another one on there. So that's like the regiment is 12, and then I made the troop base uh, six because it's half of 12. And you can, you know, and then they're magnetized. So you can just snap things on there and just use them as is. And there is enough space on there to like do some custom terrain and like between them. So I'm going to actually put those out for free for the community on Thingiverse. Probably by the time you're hearing this podcast, they'll be available is the first thing I created. It's just going to I'm just going to put it out there for free for everybody if they want to use them.
5: And that's awesome. because, Like, especially for someone who's like growing a community or starting a community where people already have miniatures, like stuff like that just helps people get painted minis on the table and then multi-basing and stuff can happen down the road. But like just having that option to like get an army on the table quickly with miniatures you already have is huge. And just having something that makes it easier is even better. You know, your story of the Brockwriters is, is great. It's like, it's about, you know, family growing the community, taking, you know, technology and helping like grow the hobby. And like, it's, You know, these are the good things that 3D printing can, can do. Like, you can just bring your own inspiration to life on the table, which is amazing. And you can do it for other people, too. Like, you can do it for your other gaming group. You can do it for your family. You can do it for yourself. I think it really helps. So let's talk about, you know, that impact on the gaming community, like, locally and for yourself, like, that 3D printing has had. Like, so, Nick, do you want to start us off on, like, how 3d printing has improved or affected your your gaming personally and like in your local community
2: so in terms of the community impact i think it's still very limited it's it's a technology that's that's quite out of reach of a lot of a lot of people just because it's 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 not so widely available in in people's houses at the moment um i tend to be quite quite negative on on the uh, the future aspects of 3d printing so i'm, I'm probably not the best first person to ask on this i i think in general people overestimate the impact that it's going to have on the on the wargaming industry i think that a lot of the the current problems with 3d printing why it's not reached mass adoption are inherent problems with the technology so things like the um all the safety concerns that we went through about resin printing well that's a fundamental aspect of the technology that's not something that's going to be fixed by oh well technology improves all the time and all the rest of it no you're always going to have those those problems which will prevent it from meeting mass adoption so i don't think it's going to be as impactful as as perhaps some more optimistic people think but um i think it's going to be an absolute boon for the the things that i've been talking about where it's it, it's about customizing your miniatures. If, if you could imagine, and I, it blows my mind that GW haven't set this system up already, but imagine if you could upload your Space Marine chapter symbol to a website and it projects it onto a Space Marine shoulder pad and you could order 50 or 70 Space Marine shoulder pads with your, your custom chapter icon, 3D printed. There's no need to keep Molds around. There's no need to, for for GW to keep a stock of all these things. If you could do that, that would be a massive money maker for GW. And I I think that's that's going to be the way forwards for three D printing. It's going to be about the the custom designs. In some cases, it's going to be about miniatures, which wouldn't normally see a lot of sales. Um, like really niche miniatures, they they're going to be viable because you can just print them on demand. They they're not going to have to have stock for them but I, I think the big thing in future is going to be our customization of miniatures and that's where 3d printing is going to come into come into its own
5: yes yeah, so it's kind of more of a boutique miniatures, like custom custom miniature tailors as it is like bespoke creating you know your own thing as opposed to just like everyone's going to have their own printer it's going to be more like there will be more printers out there and you know it's easier to do a 3d design than you know sculpt the green stuff you know, miniature and cast it and stuff like that. So there'll be more opportunities to do small runs and weird things and specific things.
2: Absolutely. Um, I think Hero Forge is a prime example of the sort of thing that I'm thinking of where you can go on and you can uh, customize your character through their through their design software, which is all very easy to use. You're not custom sculptor, you're selecting this hat with this face and this body and this armor and this sword and you could design a, a, this combination of of elements that you want, and if you mix that with some ability to upload like custom army symbols and stuff, and 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 emboss them onto miniatures where appropriate, that's the sort of thing that you, you could never do in the past. You can't do that with traditional with traditional production methods, but I, I don't think three D printing is ever going to reach the point where it's um, ever going to replace like mass production. Even resin cast miniatures—it's—it's—it's just not going to reach that level, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
5: We've all like made our role-playing characters on like Skyrim or something like that, where you like pick and choose. And I think options like that for the future for miniatures, I think, will only increase.
1: Now, this is where I'm probably going to disagree a bit with my compatriots because I see this technology having a much greater impact on the industry. Maybe not in some of the ways. Uh, that people fear or, or expect, it's, uh, but it already has. Uh, the thing to understand is that 3D printing has come along at a technology level simultaneously or a little bit behind the concept of digital sculpting. I mean, before ZBrush really hit the scene, which is a, the first really widely adopted professional digital sculpting method of producing minis if you looked at like 3d assets and video games it they, there were some really great modelers out there but it was it was so much harder work to make organic natural looking characters when you have to design it in cad software where you're literally manually putting lines and curves in one at a time to to sort of model out something whereas as soon as the sculpting came in and it's very close to actually working with sculpting, uh, then it really changed the game and the the uh, the quality of 3D models that have been produced since that has come out has just like rapidly rocketed forward. And as like Blender has come out and and sort of adopted some of those things in a free open source software, it means that the Ability to make minis and and where the access is, where these artists that we're seeing are coming from on these Patreon's and on these websites, like the all stars that are showing up, are 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 from areas of the world where and from backgrounds that traditionally might not have had good access to to be able to produce these things or the connections needed to become like a Reaper sculptor or somebody who's working for GW. And also I'm seeing less and less and less professional artists working in green stuff and traditional mediums. I mean, Sandra Garrity still does. And she's one of my favorite sculptors ever. Uh, She uh, did a lot of work for Reaper and she does work for Dwarven Forge now. But, uh, but most of the, the sculptors I'm seeing coming through, especially the new ones are doing it in pure 3d. And because the models are in 3d, And because the printers are becoming cheaper, easier to use, I do see this having a massive impact on what the industry is. Is it going to replace traditional going out and buying a set of box set minis or ordering a set of like Mantic pre-produced models? Probably not, because 3D printing is a really good way of making something cheap in small quantities. And it's really, really terrible about mass producing anything. This is... Uh, the, the resin's a little bit better because we can print like a whole troop or regiment of models at the same time. And as those screens get bigger, that'll keep getting better. But it's still going to be massively slower than anything like a, a factory inject, injection molding can do. But for our hobby, it's actually a smaller hobby than most people really think it is. The tabletop gaming industry in its entirety is tiny compared to just about any other uh, media that we think of. It's 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 a fraction of what the video game industry is. It is a, I mean, compared to just people who play Monopoly or, or mass market board games, we are a tiny fraction of that. And because of that, it's the 3D printing models are available uh, to fill the need. It's actually able to meet that need a lot better. So yeah, you're, your your regiment of elf archers might still be mass produced, but uh, the the general in your army or that hero that you're only going to need one of and only like 10% of the community is even going to want that model is probably going to be 3D printed resin or in the future. Plus, the safety issues keep getting easier. They keep coming out with better resins. Like I said, there's less toxic resins right now. They've got resins that you can just rinse off with water. And that means that you don't have to deal with like the alcohol and the baths and all this other stuff that you're worried about. You still have to care about the the resin's toxicity, but you know, dealing with the the chemicals is is a part is one of the biggest part of the hassle. And if I can replace half of the chemicals I'm using with tap water, then that makes my life a ton easier. And I see that just getting better and better over the years. And we're already seeing a lot of the the more independent space moving in this direction. Westphalia just announced that they're going to be doing a 3D line of their productions, um, starting with their Halfling line, which I know a lot of people are a fan of. I know somebody's doing a Kingdoms of Halfmen uh, on this podcast. and Yeah, that's Rob. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I have been following that and it's it's been wonderful. Uh, I don't know if he's using Westphalia or not, but I know that that's a popular choice for people that want to do Halfling Armies. They're they're announced that they're going to make a whole wing of their company dedicated to making STL files and selling them instead of selling physical minis because manufacturing cost is zero for somebody that's doing that. Uh, You don't have warehouses involved. You can just send the product to the customer uh, instantly, and they can have it in within hours of you producing it. Uh, That happens a lot with uh, with the Patreons we see, like the diehard fans. Like Artisan Guild will say, here's a dragon, and then literally five hours later, somebody says, here's my full scale 200 millimeter tall dragon that I just printed on my crazy printer settings that I've also half painted, which, you know, within hours of the mini even existing in the public to having a fully painted example of it from a fan on the Facebook page. That's just not a reality that existed before now, and I don't think it's doom and gloom to the miniatures, miniatures process, but it is absolutely gonna be disruptive. And we're going to see a lot more independence people operating in this space. And the the uh, the people that do not, the companies that try to not adapt or embrace some of the parts of this technologies are the ones that are gonna get suffer and be replaced by the new upstarts that are absolutely jumping in, as we've seen with every single uh, industry that more independent and widely accessible technology has changed in the past. I also love that it is meaning that we're seeing so many models out there available for us to make. They just would not exist uh, under the the old model where uh, putting mass production was like basically the requirement. So you would never see, hey, we're going to do this whole army full of weird fish people that are this very specific anime style, or we're going to make an entire army of Fox people uh, so that you can make that if you want. And like just little one-offs that the artists are really getting to just do what they want to do because the cost of entry is so low. They don't have to worry about, well, is this model going to sell enough copies that I can justify renting out a factory in China for several months and, and, in several tens of thousands of dollars of upfront, it cost an expense before I can distribute it across the entire world to sell enough copies to justify making it. It's just, Hey, I woke up one evening and wanted to spend an half an hour making a gnome on a pogo stick. And now I have it in my hands tomorrow.
2: <laughs> it does. It, it takes a lot longer than half an hour to sculpt a, a, a gnome on a pogo stick.
1: Yeah, um, I think was being a the, bit
2: facetious there, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, one, of, one of the issues there is about sustainability. Like the um, A lot of the early companies who started out selling 3D print models are now having quite strong, uh, quite severe financial issues because the market just isn't there. And I, I personally, I think that the Patreon bubble is, is a bubble that's going to burst at some point. I, I don't think it's suspect the, the business model is currently sustainable because while you don't have to pay for the, the factory, the artists still have to be paid. They still have to, to earn a living. So you, your cost of production isn't free. And if you're only selling your model to 100 people, that's not enough to to sustain your business.
5: Yeah, like any industry, I think it's going to go through a bit of growing pains and, and it'll Absolutely. try to find its legs eventually to like, you know, settle out, like there'll be a lot of Patreons and a lot of people coming out like, oh, I can just do this. And now, you know, I have no manufacturing costs and I can make a lot of money, but, but then they'll, some of them won't. And then, you know, within, as the technology matures, things will stabilize a little bit. And like, a you know, a business model that will work for the majority of people will emerge, I think. And, you know, it might be somewhere in between and, you know, find that middle ground of what actually works for the various, you know, the various miniature markets. Like it's not just tabletop gaming It's you know, it's role playing. It's just, it's collectors, it's painters, you know, so I think the industry will start figuring itself out as well.
1: I'm going to defend my position here with a little bit of like hard fact on this because I've commissioned some 3d art before and have been involved in projects to that have, professionally put things like this out in the world. I used to actually do work for Fat Dragon Games as part of their team to do the cut files for their paper stuff. so I've been kind of involved in the industry and seen the the actual numbers of what's involved here. I can hire a 3D artist to do a custom uh, standard miniature size mini for some, and the cost have come way down since like five even five years ago but I can get a custom high quality designed mini. From an artist and get commercial rights to it for somewhere between a 200 dollars of guns. I'm not going extreme uh, with the details or crazy. This won't get me something like the you know like a the Mantic or GW like like really highest quality, highest detailed, most dynamic sculpt. But it'll definitely get me something along the lines of you know a Bones model or a, or a Deep Cuts from from Wiz Kids. I can then, if I sell that model for $5 or $4, which is about the industry standard right now to 100 people, I've already turned a profit. And if you go to uh, websites like uh, DriveThruRPG, which is, I have a lot more experience there, uh, your average product that gets produced for the tabletop industry there is usually around $1,000 to $2,000 in upfront cost to produce. And if they sell even a hundred of copies or 200 copies, they consider that a success because it turns a profit and they can just throw that over to the next to the next model. We're dealing with a, a, a scale of profit and need that is infinitely smaller than, than the industry is probably used to right now. And just to give you another example, you can sell as few as 120 copies of something and hit the gold star status on a lot of uh, digital marketplaces. And there are entire companies that are absolutely sustainable in feeding their artists, uh, where a day's work, uh, on average, uh, it does take about, to do a, a high quality model, a professional artist today working in the industry, they usually take about 10 hours to produce it. So a couple of days work to get $500 profit is not exactly the worst in the world, uh, money-wise. It will keep money on the table.
3: Right. So. Th- but like you say, this isn't a, a new industry, really, and it's just industry with a small audience. So what you'll see, I think, you know, I think Nick is right that a lot of the companies that started up are struggling, and that's what happens when you get new industries. You get a lot of people interested, a lot of people into that industry, and then companies die, and you get a few successful ones that become the dominant force, right? And I think that's the process we're going through now. Is that, and uh, I think Nick's also right with Patreons. You know, you have a number of Patreons that are doing well, and then you've got a hundred others that have got a few you Know a, a couple of tens of, of, of followers, they'll eventually die out because it just doesn't, it's just not worth doing. Um, and then the successful ones will grow bigger and bigger, and then you become miniature companies. And, um, I think that's kind of the process we're seeing now. Um, I think what, what my worry is is miniature companies don't typically run to a massive profit apart from GW, right? We know, you know, Ronnie's talked enough on uh, about how his company runs uh, to know that miniature sales absolutely make that company tick, they make games. Um, and we wouldn't have the game if we weren't buying their miniatures. So do, you, do we think there's something that the industry can do to adapt, existing companies can do to adapt to this new marketplace to kind of to, to meet the challenge that's coming?
4: Um, I think there's a few different things that can happen. Uh, I agree that, that currently the market, I feel, is really oversaturated for everything. I can think of at least 20 companies off the top of my head um, that are at GW quality miniatures in terms of their STL files so what i feel like the industry needs to do to adapt so that it doesn't fall on the wayside like i feel like mdf train has because of 3D printing is kind of acknowledging that the 3D printing exists. Um, I'm going to take more of a middle stand. I don't think everyone's going to have their own 3D resin printers. What I think is going to happen is similar to what our gaming group is now, where you have one or two guys who actually have the resin printers, and then everyone just kind of chips in and helps out uh, by either purchasing minis from them or getting STL files and, and stuff like that. I feel like as the industry as a whole kind of taking the way that Westphalia had is kind of approaching it of you can buy these plastic miniatures from us or if you want here the stl files and or like we'll just use mantic as an example with their new abyssal dwarf saying you know what here's all our abyssal dwarfs you can buy it from us here's our pricing here's what everything is if you have your own printer if you subscribe to us for 15 dollars a month you get the entire abyssal dwarf catalog and then with that $15 a month, then you'll get this catalog and this catalog and then kind of offering a, a 3D portion side of it. Unfortunately, I feel that no matter what a company will do, that th- this is going to affect a lot of industries' bottom lines. Not that the money's not going into the hobby or the industry anymore. I just feel like it's going to be a lot more diverse. Um, you know, instead of one or two, three major companies kind of raking in the, the, the lion's share of it, I feel like. A lot of smaller companies are going to have enough to keep going um, and they're going to take a little bit more of that pie if the industries don't adapt and at least have a a 3D branch to it to kind of keep up with the technology. Because I don't feel like 3D printing is going to go away. I'm a little bit more optimistic than Nick, but definitely more conservative than Parham in the sense that I feel like it's always going to be here, but I don't feel it's going to be the the, the be-all to end-all to any kind of company and that it's going to be to a level that's going to be so accessible that it's going to be click and play. That's kind of how I've approached it. And I feel like that's kind of the the middle line that we're going to be straddling for a bit until we see more of how this technology kind of emerges and, and matures.
5: Well, I think something like what Nick was saying with the, the shoulder pads, is like I think existing larger companies have to acknowledge that this technology exists. And I think rolling that into their business plan is like for customers who want to take advantage of it is probably a smart way forward. I think there will always be the majority of people who just want to buy the product. And like, I just want a box of stuff that I can have. I don't want to have to go through another process to make the stuff. I just want to have it. But I think, you know, there's a growing desire for that customized model or like just getting exactly what you want or, you know, having some more, have some more say in what the product is. And I think, you know, 3d printing gives the option for for customers and i think you know the the companies have to acknowledge that and try to take advantage of that if they want to keep growing and keep the the community healthy and the the business healthy
3: cool so we have covered the the depth and breadth of 3d printing Uh, so just before we finish up we have a a section for shout outs at the end of the show so uh, please let's go through and shout out anyone you fancy any closing thoughts and how can listeners follow the adventures of each of you uh perim
1: Hey, I just want to uh, shout out to probably my favorite uh, miniature company, which is Monstrous Encounters. Uh, they do a lot of 80s inspired uh, models. Uh, like they just released a uh, Raw Partha inspired wood elf troops that they're going to be releasing later, and that's really cool, just to give you an example of why I like them. And also if you want to follow me, you can do so at nodirectionpodcast.com, where I talk about a lot about RPGs and, and nerdy stuff like that.
3: Awesome. How about yourself, Evan? Uh So, I like to make a huge shout
4: out to Artesian Guild uh, and uh, Heroes Infinite, which is Raging Heroes. Uh, I've always loved their models. I think they're top notch, and I'm really excited to be able to, to 3D print my own um, Raging Heroes level sculpts and and minis, because they have some really awesome ones out right now. I don't really have too much social media. I'm not particularly a, a very vocal person. I'm much more in the background. My Thingiverse tag is Shadowsword and I'm sure I can send Steve a link to, uh, to where my Kings of War bases are, and uh, I'll get my stairs out eventually too when I resize them properly. But I'm much more of a quiet person and, and much more in the background, so you might not hear from me too soon, but I am going to try to uh, get as many simple accessory fixes that I can out there for people and just try to improve the quality of life for
3: uh, our gamers. Awesome, and Mr. Williams?
2: So I'd like to give a shout-out to, I don't know whether he... he wants to go by his full name on here or anything but uh i'll go by his facebook name but nick Offtime has just started a uh a twitch channel he's uh one of the top uk painters and he's doing really well this twitch where he's uh, doing streaming of his hobby i'm finding it really interesting watching him work and i really want to support that he's uh mcswifty 13 on twitch uh which again i'll give to steve to put in the show notes but please go go uh Give him a look and uh, follow him on on Twitch. I think he's uh, going to be really big in the future. And when it comes to three D models, I, I guess what I'll do is I'll uh, put forward my Cults three D page where I've uploaded my creations. And again, I'll I'll give that to Steve for the show notes.
3: It's going to be a hefty show notes this episode
2: can be very hefty
3: I was on Nick's Twitch stream it was adorable because every time somebody followed him he gets really excited it's lovely he's it's really just like a really genuine lovely guy I highly recommend it.
2: He he absolutely is like I say he's one of the best UK painters um, and and one of the most interesting things for me when you're watching things like this is just, just watching an artist's sort of process as they approach some of the things like that's been really interesting to see
4: so that's gonna do us tonight. And until next time, keep countercharging. Thanks for listening.
0: And we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com on Twitter at countercharge fifteen. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep counter-charging. Music is a composition of Kevin MacLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons. Uh,
2: one of them being thingiverse.com. So that's t h i uh, I'm, I'm.
4: Do you know what? I'm <laughs> gonna, how to spell the word like thing?
2: G I D E R. Thingy is what com. I forgot how to spell. <laughs> <laughs> tell you what, tell you what. I'm gonna tell you, Steve, to put it in the show we'll notes. Stick it in okay? the
3: show notes, don't worry. Yeah.
2: Yep, yep.